While Edgar Allan Poe reported that the raven, quote, nevermore, crows may respond with more likely when forced to choose between two options. At least according to our guest on today's episode of Stats and Stories, where we focus on recent work suggesting that crows demonstrate statistical inference skills. I'm John Baylor. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Rosemary Pennington is away. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa Johnston, a neurobiologist from New Zealand who investigates complex cognition in birds. Following the completion of her PhD at the University of Otago, Dr. Johnston was awarded a Humboldt Research Fellowship to continue research in Germany at the Eberhard Karl University of Tübingen, and now she's a postdoctoral researcher at the Animal Minds Lab, the Universität Ottomana. Her research focuses on the interplay between the brain and behavior such as working memory, timing, and probabilistic reasoning in a range of avian species, including pigeons, jackdaws, and carrion crows. She is the lead author on a current biology paper, Crows Flexibly Apply Statistical Inferences Based on Previous Experience. Millie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, now, now, Millie, while I'm tempted to start our conversation with a question about the names of the crows, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I, <laughs> I'd like to get, get started with a little bit more relevant background. What led you to start exploring statistical inference ideas with crows? Well, actually, um, I wasn't the one who started this project. The project was started by our co-author, Dr. Katerina Brecht. So she was the real driving force behind starting this up and, and training the birds. I was just lucky enough to take over from her and get to do a deep dive into the data and, and present it to the world, I guess. She's also worked with a lot of bird species um, and their various uh, cognitive skills. We've been on a couple of papers together now, another one from the same lab where we looked at recursive uh, sequence generation in crows as well. So, so crows have this reputation for being really clever. And problem mm -hmm. solvers and sort of, mm -hmm. you know, it, and I think I've even read that, that there's some tool use that, that they might even employ. So I, I wasn't fully surprised to see this was the, the, the bird that was being, being used to demonstrate and, and dive into these questions. Can you give us just a quick summary of what's, what was the research question that was being explored in, in this study? Yep, of course. So for this project, what we really wanted to know is can these bird species learn to associate, um, in this case, arbitrary stimuli, such as a, a square or a triangle, to the probability of getting a reward? And so once we found that they could do this, we wanted to see if they could flexibly apply this information to make judgments about which would be better if they were presented with two options. So you're presented with option A, where you've got a 20% chance of reward, and option B, with a 40% chance of reward. We wanted to see if they could really apply this knowledge they'd learned and pick the, the more optimal item of where they could get a higher chance of reward. So, you know, this, this is just, to, to me, it's amazing to think about the, the fact that there are nine unique abstract shapes that, that these birds are learning. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think about if I could get nine shapes down with different probabilities. You know, so, so, you know, so you've got this collection for these birds, and, and there's some training process for them to learn that you know, somehow you know, maybe a filled circle is 
some you know zero percent and a, a triangle is eighty percent or a filled triangle is forty percent and a filled square is a hundred percent. How mm-hmm. how did you do that? I mean, how did how was this done in this lab? Yep. So the same way you would sort of do this um, with any species or even with humans, it's just through experience. And that was one of the key things we were interested in because many statistical inference paradigms have the information immediately available to the subject making the choice, whereas we wanted to see if they could learn it from experience alone. So essentially what we did is um, these birds were already quite experienced in being able to work in operant chambers. So... Thankfully, that was all done. So all we had to do was repeatedly expose them to these stimuli to let them build up an internal representation of a probability of reward. So so let's just to, to, to kind of deconstruct that expression, operant chamber. So I'm so there these b- birds in a box and they're mm-hmm. picking they're picking or pecking one of two choices. Is that is that kind of the, the essence of it? Yeah, so for training, it was just one stimulus, and they were either rewarded or not. And then for the testing, they were presented with the two items, and they had to make a choice which one they thought was better. So so how many times were they... It, it, how long did training take? You know, how many <laughs> times do you have to see long. a? Yeah, how many times do you have to see a forty percent response before you start getting a handle that oh that you know that that filled triangle is forty percent reward. I mean, I actually think that would be a very good um, follow-up study because oh. we gave them a lot of trials, but we don't know how long it takes for them to build this representation. You know, you know if you think, like I always think about what would I would do in this situation, and I think 10 trials, maybe I could do that with a couple of different uh, reward outcomes, but for nine of them, like I would need a lot more than 10 trials of each of those. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. I was I was just imagining that that it was probably the that in the course of doing this experiment, a lot more of the time was spent just getting them to learn the mm-hmm. the rewards, the, the the pairing of reward percentage with mm-hmm. the, the abstract symbol that they were they were meeting. Yep. So they were trained for I think they experienced a couple of hundred trials of each stimulus. Which that's that's a lot, and the the fact is, is they had to update their mental representation with each new presentation of the same stimulus. So, you know, the the probability of something occurring changes every time that you've experienced it, and it's you know roughly something by the end of the representation forming. So, so they're they're doing this. What what's by the way, what's the reinforcement? You know, what was the reward for that that they were getting? Yep. So they get a mixture of um, these little tiny bio pearls, which has all the nutritional value they need um, in their diet, but also live worms. Ah, well, I, I'd I'd work for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I, I well, and I'm I'm also thinking if you're doing hundreds of these trials, I mean, at some point they're just going to say, "Look, I'm full. I don't care what it is." Yeah, you know? and they let so you, you know. <laughs> they will let you know. Yeah, they just casually just you know stop working. They're like, "No, thank you. I'm done." 
you know, that's that's probably there's some wisdom there. There's some, you know, probably that's, that's probably a, a healthy dietary choice for them to, to stop. OK, so so now so let, now I'm, I'm trying to, to I've got this picture in my mind that we now have these two crows. These are these two all star crows that are participating in this study. And they now have some representation of kind of relative frequency by which they're going to expect a reward associated with each of these nine abstract shapes. So these, and you know, and these shapes are going to be mapped to either 10%, 20%, up through 90% reward. Now, here comes the, this, this is where the, 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 the study begins, you know, where they have the choice and they're going to have paired choices. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the study where you're, you're looking at kind of what's the right choice for the bird to make? Of course. Yeah, this is the, the really interesting part, as you said, because we presented them with two of the stimuli and they just simply had to make a choice. There was no right or wrong answer in that they weren't guaranteed a reward for picking the stimulus with the higher probability associated with it. So so they simply had to pick the item, um, well, it was in their best interest to pick the item with the higher reward probability. But that item, uh, be it the, the filled circle or the red square or... I don't know, the dot, it wasn't always the optimal item. So for example, the 50% reward was the, was the better choice when it was paired with 40, 30, 20, or 10, but it was actually the worst choice when paired with any of the stimuli associated with a high reward probability. So what's really cool is that we could make all of these different combinations and see if they could make an optimal choice based on uh, the pair that it was currently in. So when they were encountering these pairs, you know, so they were encountering like a 40% and a 70% pair. Was sometimes the 40% on the left and other times a 40% on the right, again, paired with that 70%? Exactly, yes. So there was 36 unique pairings of the, um, of the probabilities of the stimuli. But then when you control for which side of the screen they were presented on, it's actually 72 unique conditions. Okay. So it's very right. unlikely they were like, oh, I've seen this pair before and it was the right choice when it was on the left. I'm going to do the left again because, again, remembering 72 unique combinations is, that's not an easy thing to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of see if I can remember some, some lessons that I had learned about memory so you can help me, help, help me understand <laughs> yeah. this. So. Yeah, the, the, the irony of the question, right? Uh, so, so, the, so with short-term memory, we talk about maybe four to six chunks of information that can be retained. Um, mm -hmm. So, so really, you're, I don't know what crows have in terms is is what's a crow's short-term memory? Yeah, that's a good question. And another lab in Bochum, also in Germany, they've had a look at this, and it does appear to be between four and six items, very similar to primates. Okay. So then, then what you've done in the training is you're trying to move this into longer-term memory mm -hmm. by that mm -hmm. just by the the repeated exposure to these various stimuli yeah essentially hey I, I just was curious i didn't notice when i looked at your paper did you ever pair the same stimuli just to see if they if they picked left the same frequency as they picked right oh that would have been a great probe trial yeah no we didn't that would have been a really huh. good condition to have Okay, I, I just was curious because I was thinking, well, you know, I, I, you answered part of my question about kind of whether there was any side preference, but you balanced that out as part of the, the this experimental probe that you're doing. But I just thought, mm -hmm. wow, I wonder if they did that, and if you if they did do kind of half a chance of picking left or you know sort of the that would that would sort of in my mind kind of be this nice reinforcement piece. So, 
Just... Yeah, definitely. Definitely something to keep in mind for the future. So, that, so Charles, there's my, that might be my future here, you know, thinking about these types of studies. You know, just... <laughs> Have you considered a career in that animal oh, I... training? <laughs> I, I will say that one of my favorite undergraduate courses, I took a, a wonderful um, class in animal behavior by someone who was a, a psychologist studying uh, actually taste preference. And some of his taste preference were there were some, uh, these were some uh, squirrels that, that really loved incredibly spicy things. So, so there's a, this, there was a, it was a really interesting Amazing. study of food preference. And that, so that, that I just remember it, it, he was trying to understand how, how people develop those types of preferences too. So it just, it was just fun to think about. So, I, so yeah, I, I like the animal behavior stuff. I think it's really fascinating. Uh, you know, as, as you look at the work that you've done, I, I, I guess I, I need to ask, so, so what did you see? I mean, I've, I've been burying the lead here. I mean, if Rosemary was here, she'd really be mad at me because I have this great story and I didn't get to the key part until halfway through the episode. So, so what was the, the, the big takeaway that you saw from this work? So the overall results? Basically. Yeah, particularly, you know, so, so they're, they're given a choice where you've got a higher probability abstract thing and a lower probability abstract thing paired together as a choice. So mm -hmm. you would, you know, if they didn't use any information, you'd expect it's a coin flip where they might pick. So what did you see, though? Yep. So what we found was that they were really good at this task. They were really good at picking um, the optimal choice or the one with the higher likelihood of reward and this um they were even better when the distance between the two items was larger so when 90 was paired against 20 it was much easier for them compared to when 90 was paired against 80. so the bigger the distance the, the you know the easier it was for them or the more they picked the higher likelihood you're listening to Stats and Stories. Our guest today is Millie Johnston, postdoctoral researcher in the Animal Minds Lab at the Universitat Atomina de Barcelona. Well, Millie, what was, what's the hardest part of working with crows? <laughs> um, sometimes just, oh, how do I phrase this? I don't know if there is anything difficult. These crows are really professional, you know? You train them to fly to your arm, they fly to you and then you put them in the box and they work away and then they stop when they want to and then you take them home. I guess the hardest part is making sure that we are testing what we think we're testing. Is that, that training to get to the point where we're like, okay, this is what we really want to look at. This is what we're testing. That's, so, so how old are these crows when, when, they, when they, they, get, they start working with, mm -hmm. with the lab? Probably about a year or so. Okay. Yep, and they can live for, you know, quite a long time, especially in captivity because they're very well looked after. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, come back to one of the things that you were mentioning just before the break, and that was you were talking about kind of that, that one of the things that was reinforcing this, this, the strength of the result that you saw is that as you saw greater separation of the stimuli. So, you know, a 60-40 selection there is not quite the same strength of fr or frequency of picking 60 as you would see from a 90-10 pairing of stimuli. Mm -hmm. So that so that was the what you called the the the, the distance between them, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. what, what else did you what else did you kind of learn in terms of kind of the comparison of the stimuli and how it might have driven the responses that you observed? Yep. So the other um, the big thing that we saw was um, as you mentioned that that's what we call the distance effect, where the bigger the distance, the the easier discriminations are basically 
There's also the magnitude effect. So what that is is where um, the distance, the difference between 20 and 40, while it has a difference of 20, is not treated the same as a difference between 60 and 80. And that's mm-hmm. simply because 20, the, the difference between 20 and 40 is double, basically, but the difference between 60 and 80 is not double. So this is what we call the magnitude effect, where it, or the ratio, the ratio difference effect, where it's not just about the absolute number of difference between these numbers or this reinforcement schedule, but also the relative difference as well. Hmm. So, so when you, if you're thinking about these ratios, all of a sudden I'm picturing kind of 0.2 to 0.4 comparisons, and then 0.3 to 0.6 comparisons, and then 0.4 to 0.8 comparisons. Do you, do you see that you'd have the same relative selection of the optimal choice in each of those pairings? Yes, that is yes. So your example where you're comparing 0.2 to 0.4 and say 0.3 to 0.6 and 0.4 to 0.8. That yep. they are treated the same or roughly the same because they're the same wow. ratio difference between them. So that wow, okay, I, I was yeah. I was curious because I was I was thinking that, you know, maybe get, get I'm trying to ch- channel my inner crow and think about these results. And so as I was thinking about like the point two and point four, it's like eh, I'm not going to get it either way. You know, I don't care. But but you know, and point six, point eight. But maybe that's. Maybe when I go to point, when I'm thinking about point eight to point four, I'm I'm like, man, this is almost a sure thing compared to the other, which is at eh, less than a coin toss. Now, maybe my channeling of an inner crow is not working, but I, I, I so, but that's interesting that you're seeing kind of very similar results in that that regard. Yeah, so both of these are quite um, known sort of effects of the the analog magnitude system. So this system or this internal representation that we have of numbers. And yeah, I guess at the numerical system, basically. So, so you also, I, I think if, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you, you also gave them a holiday of a, about a month and then you tested them again. Yeah. And they were just wh- as good. They were just, a, there was no, no, no loss. No, not at all. It's incredible. I, I find that truly remarkable because I'm not sure I would expect humans to do that well <laughs> if they had that kind of a break from, you know, you know, they're, you know, maybe these these crows are not cramming for this test. They're actually they're they're learning it. And it's really mm-hmm. it's really has been conveyed to long term memory and they're using it and they're, they're still able to, to call upon it. Have, have you thought about going back, you know, maybe a year later? I mean, is there any Ooh, is there yeah. any sense of, of kind of revisit? I love that that you went back a month later, but I'm just thinking, man, I wonder if a year later they'd still have that. I would not be surprised if if they still did incredibly well on the task. Um, as I said, these birds are very professional, um, which means they're used on a lot of different experiments. So they've moved on to to other experiments now. But I reckon if we if we try them back on this one, they'll do just as good. That's really that, okay. So, so they're 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 working on other things now. See, I would I would wonder if they as they start to work on other tasks, if that might confound this task. Oh, know, as they of course, of course, you really have to with animal tra- animal work. You really have to take into account their previous experience. Fortunately, the birds in this lab are very well trained on a lot of different numerical tasks, and so it's all generally in the same wheelhouse i guess for lack of a better word so so what other birds have have exhibited this this type of reasoning where they can learn a little bit about frequencies associated with stimuli and then apply it Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's a really great study um, from a group. Uh, the lead author was Roberts. He did it in pigeons, and that was one of the main um, influences for this experiment, but also with Kia as well. Um, they've shown not so much the learning from experience, but they still show statistical inference abilities. Yeah, uh, we had an episode with probabilistic reasoning with yes. <laughs> with uh, with that with that parrot. So that's a oh okay. Um, do you mentioned that, and I think I saw in, in part of the review of your of your paper that this is this has been observed and explored in primates. Mm-hmm. As well as you know, certain avian species. I'm I'm curious about other other animals. I mean, uh, one you know, sort of I, I think was is it um, you know octopi are thought to be very good at, at kind of problem solving. Have there have, have any of this this work been done with with marine marine species? Do you know? Not that I'm aware of, but that's a very good avenue of future research is checking it with them. We know that fish have good numerical abilities in general, so. You know, we could definitely look at fish for seeing whether they can do probabilistic inference. I think, generally speaking, most species that need to forage would be able to do this because it makes sense to remember, oh, yeah, I had a, I, I got food from there quite often, but not all the time. Or, you know, that place I got food more often relative to this other spot. So I think it is an ability that animals naturally would sort of have i i am really i'm really glad you said that because i was i was i was thinking about why why was the skill why would you expect this to evolve you know what's what what kind of selective pressures might lead for this being advantageous for for crows and so so you've just sort of generalized it to all foragers that's so that would be have there been work with with species that are non-foragers and that you know they they just don't your description here leads me to think if you studied non-foragers and compared them to foragers i'd expect much much lower performance on such tasks yeah potentially um although they might have a different reasoning for applying this kind of skill but there is also potentially, you know, the publication bias where null results don't get published, so we may never know, even if they have done it or tried but, to do it. <laughs> so, you know, okay, so that's a, that's a really interesting question about what sh- sees the light of day. Although you have, you did mention other other avian studies and primate studies where, in fact, this this type of of reasoning from um, learning this pairing of of prob- you know probability of reward with certain stimuli, and then for you know kind of a fixed choice, forced choice phenomena where they seem to to ex- exceed what what chance would predict so that's that's kind of a nice it's it's always nice to see this reproducibility in the same species as well as other species in other contexts so it seems like there's some affirmation of of that that pattern yeah so, for sure so when you look at this kind of work where you know what what excites you about doing this kind of work i have been fascinated with what birds particularly can do for actually not as long as what I would uh, <laughs> what I would care to admit, but they're just so fascinating. Every time we try and look at something new in terms of a cognitive skill, they show that they can do it. So it's so exciting to me to be like, oh, I wonder if they can do this. And then they can more often than not. And so just being able to be creative and, and think about, oh, I wonder if they can do this and then seeing if they can. I find that incredibly fun and such a a joy to be a part of. I yeah, I, I'm I'm always delighted and impressed to think about just just the distance that that birds migrate. 
just the the, mm. the the ability to to have this type of incredible uh, ultra marathon annually mm-hmm. or, you know to to see what they can do and how they they navigate it that to me is a is one of those those great stories of of nature and and this is is interesting and i'm i'm curious when you think about bird species if if the longer the the longer lived species are more likely to demonstrate this than maybe the the shorter lived species. Do you think there's any any differences that might be there? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure if lifespan would necessarily correlate, but I would suspect that there's there's mounting evidence suggesting that birds or species with more neurons or more densely packed neurons in their brain show more complex cognitive skills. So perhaps it's perhaps the living longer is a consequence of a lot of these other things rather than the other way around. Yeah, that, that whole whole direction of causality is a is a, a pretty challenging one in terms of the science <laughs> game, isn't it? <laughs> so so tell me what what's next? So what's what's on what's on deck for investigations for you? Yep. So um, at the moment, I've been working on a project. Um, I've almost finished it. So watch the space. But um, measuring the crow's ability to keep track of time, which again is a little bit numerical, but a little bit off center. And yeah, we've been looking at both the behavioral and neural sort of evidence of, of birds keeping track of time on the small scale. Oh, that's, uh, oh, wow. I, 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 I imagine that one of the great challenges to this type of work is, is trying to find the right type of experimental investigation that maps to this this type of question so so you did this for the stimuli allowed you to think about the in this current study allowed you to think about by choice whether or not they could make optimal choices so now just that seems to be a much easier definition than thinking about some kind of exploration of sense of time yeah exactly i mean there's so many like i said there's so many different things that we can test these birds with it's and they keep proving us you know bird brain isn't a bad thing you know they're incredibly intelligent and I think going forward specifically with the you know the probabilistic reasoning or the statistical inferences in this style it would be very cool to see if they can add layers to their to their understanding or their representation so you know for example there's a 50% chance of reward I'll get food from this location when foraging but only if it's been raining and there's a 50% chance of rain so building these oh. layers of um, representation of, you know, outcome probabilities would be very cool to look at. That's neat. Yeah. So you could. Yeah. I'm sort now. I'm picturing you have this. You're, you're now introducing this wet environment versus dry environment and running all the, <laughs> all these things so that you you're sort of stratifying this. Oh man, this is well. You know, as you get this working, come back and talk to us again. again. <laughs> yeah. Have a reoccurring spot on the show. <laughs> there you go. And, and now, you know, so so now when I tell call people a bird brain, they'll know that I mean it in love and affection and with respect. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Millie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on social media, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. 
If you would like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.